But I think there's been this fear that exercise is somehow going to be dangerous. Uh, and it's quite the contrary. After that first day, when they say you have cancer, there's a new person born. You know, there's this thing called new normal. I, th I think they don't really maybe understand how much it's going to help them. Each patient and each survivor is going to be experiencing different side effects, different experiences. The positive is that it's, it's never too late. Welcome to the REACH podcast, where you'll hear from researchers, doctors and patients themselves on how exercise, nutrition and lifestyle behaviors can reduce cancer risk and improve survivorship. I'm your host, Kieran Fairman. Hey, welcome back to another episode of the REACH podcast. Today is a really cool episode. I'm talking to the brilliant Dr. Jennifer McQuaid, who is an assistant professor and physician scientist in melanoma medical oncology at MD Anderson Cancer Center. Um, Jen has done a phenomenal amount of work in the space of oncology, particularly around uh, melanoma. Uh, but more recently, she published a really great review in uh, Lancet Oncology about the gut microbiome and how it's associated with uh, various cancer therapies and how it potentially uh, may enhance the therapeutic potential of these uh, therapies. So we kind of span across a few different areas. We talk about um, some of our previous work in, in body weight and uh, survival in melanoma, some really cool information there, some counterintuitive ideas about how weight may be related to survival. And then we kind of switch gears and, and move into the gut microbiome, um, what this field is, what the gut microbiome are, and how it's related to uh, cancer treatments and all that stuff. So it was, it was really, it was a masterclass, a phenomenal overview. Can't thank Jennifer enough for the time. Um, and that's pretty much it. It was a really cool episode for me. And uh, we're back rolling with all these episodes for the new year. So uh, stay tuned and hope you enjoy it. Yeah, listen, I really appreciate your time. Um, I know you're, you're super busy in, in the middle of grand season trying to get everything taken care of here. Um, and I think, as I said to you offline, your your recent work um, and this paper in particular published in The Lancet did such a good job of giving us an overview of the microbiome and its relevance to um, cancer and potentially um, the therapeutic response in cancer. But let's backtrack a little bit and give people a little bit of a background about yourself and how you got into this area. Sure, absolutely. Um, well, first of all, thank you for, for having me on. And it's really a, an honor and a pleasure to talk to you this morning. Um, so I am a uh, melanoma medical oncologist at MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas, uh, and a physician scientist. And my work is actually uh, mainly focused around how um, host factors, so either um, unmodifiable factors such as uh, age and sex or modifiable lifestyle factors influence tumor biology and the anti-tumor immune response. So what was your, or where did this recent interest in microbiome come from? Well, so um, Jen Wargo here at MD Anderson um, was really one of the pioneers as far as uh, this field of really looking at the microbiome and response to immunotherapy. I had been uh, in parallel working on looking at energy balance factors, so uh, obesity and diet and how that might influence response to therapy and melanoma. Um, and so then we, we 
partnered then to really look at this um, interaction between how uh, host factors, the microbiome, and therapeutic response all uh, all all play out together. So, as a as an important aside, then what what have you kind of seen in relation to uh, obesity diet and the response to melanoma? Sure. So, um, so my my first work was actually looking at obesity and melanoma, and uh, we know that obesity is a risk factor. Um, for many malignancies and is now recognized by the World Health Organization as an established risk factor for 13 different malignancies. Um, It's also been found to be associated with worse outcomes um, in some cancers, so meaning not the risk, but now you have a patient in front of you that is obese, do they do better or worse than somebody with a normal BMI? And in some cancers, they do worse. And interestingly, actually, in some cancers, they may do a bit better. Um, So this had not been investigated in melanoma. Um, And in melanoma, um, some recent work at MD Anderson and others had actually shown that the insulin and insulin-like growth factor uh, signaling pathways could actually cause resistance to both targeted and immunotherapies in melanoma. Um, And given that this is one of the links between the pathogenesis of obesity and cancer, we hypothesize that obesity would be associated with worse outcomes in metastatic melanoma. Um, And in work that we published in Lancet Oncology um, almost exactly a year ago, we actually found, much to our surprise, that obesity was actually associated with significantly improved outcomes in uh, patients treated with both immune therapy as well as targeted therapy and melanoma. Um, but interestingly, actually not with chemotherapy. Any insight into why the kind of differential response? Yeah. So, um, you know, so where we've really been going now is what is this wonder, what is this underlying mechanism Um, which is especially critical because I don't think that the answer is that, you know, that our patients should gain weight um, (laughs) to to improve response. So um, a couple of potential um, interesting observations. So the the first question is always, is this this real, right? Is this truly a real association? Um, Because maybe this is just spurious. This study actually involved over uh, 1,900 patients in six independent cohorts um, and was very consistent and very strong throughout. So we looked at things like, you know, do the the obese patients just have um, less aggressive disease, but we adjusted for the prognostic factors that remain true. Um, We looked at things like uh, concomitant medications, like metabolic syndrome medications that our obese patients might be more likely to take, like aspirin, statins, metformin, and beta blocker. And these are all all actually uh, drugs that seem to have some anti-tumor activity um, in melanoma, and the effects were independent of that. Um, It was not related to adverse events or to weight loss, and actually unlike chemotherapy, um, our patients on immune and targeted therapies actually don't lose weight. So it seemed to be independent of all that. And then 
an interesting observation that we made was that we've actually known for a long time that women with melanoma have better outcomes than men. Um, and again, this seems to be independent of behavior. We kind of, um, I think most medical professionals will tell you that in general, women tend to be better patients, you know, kind of more compliant patients. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, but, but in, in, it seems independent of that and seems to be a biological effect. Um, but the mechanism had been unclear. And so what we had actually seen was that, um, our females with melanoma, they actually did well regardless of their BMI. So their two-year overall survival in these cohorts was about 60, 65%. But interestingly, um, in the males was actually where BMI mattered. So obese males have outcomes very similar to females of any BMI um, with uh, survival around 60 to 65%. And then it's the normal BMI males their two-year survival is on the order of 30 to 35%. So almost half um, that of females or of um, obese males. And so what this leads us to then is wondering if this could be hormonally driven. So we know that, um, that adipose tissue is actually not indolent. It's actually bio very biologically active. And one of the things that it does is that um, it actually, um, via aromatase activity, converts androgens into estrogens. And so obese men actually have higher circulating levels of estrogens and decreased levels of um, testosterone. And... So we started looking at this, and we're still investigating this, but um, melanoma is not a classically hormonally uh, sensitive tumor. It doesn't have estrogen, classical estrogen receptors, but it turns out there's actually this novel um, G-protein coupled estrogen receptor that's recently been described by uh, the Todd Ridsky's lab at Penn that actually um, may explain both this sex difference in melanoma and then potentially also this obesity effect as well. And so it basically ends up promoting cellular differentiation and rendering the cells more vulnerable um, to immune-mediated killing. If this information continues to build, and as you said, if it's consistent that normal, normal weight men um, have a reduced mm -hmm. survival in comparison to their obese compatriots, your you know, what's the advice? It, it surely can't be yeah. to pile on the weight, you know? Right, right. And, you know, I think the important thing to note there, too, is so, again, you know, we I mean, we know that obesity, has, you know, is still going to increase their risk for secondary malignancies, right, for other diseases. And so the question is, if we get at the biology, then can we recapitulate the biology by, for example, giving, um, right now we're looking at developing this G-protein coupled estrogen receptor agonist, you know, can we give that to kind of um, mimic that biology without having the harmful effects of obesity? Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it, you know, and then as a clinician, it's really interesting. My, uh, my patients are very well-read. They do their, you know, they 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 do their research and kind of come across my paper, and you know, they either walk in as an obese male saying, "Yeah," you know, or as a normal BMI male saying, "Gosh, what do I, you know, what do I do?" 
Um, and that's, you know, that's a big challenge, but I think it comes down to, to, you know, just like in the other literature, say breast cancer, when we know that, um, obesity is associated with worse outcomes, we still also need to prove through interventional trials that changing body weight changes outcomes and changes biology, right? We have to take it from, you know, just an epidemiological association down to actually showing that then changing that host metabolic phenotype changes our outcomes. Yeah, I wonder, is there any, so obviously you're focused primarily on, on the fat mass. Is there anything you think in terms of maybe lean body mass? Obviously it, it plays a role in different cancer types in terms of a, having a protective effect. Um, do you yeah. think there's anything at play there? Yeah, no, absolutely. So that's one of the things that we're looking at now is, you know, BMI is just a dirty surrogate, right? It's just a calculation. <laughs> it's, it's heightened. I've never heightened heard anyone with... call it dirty before. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, you uh, somebody that has a BMI of 30, you know, could either be a linebacker or could have no lean muscle mass and, you know, and be obese, like to have a lot of adipose tissue. And so one of the things that we're now doing, um, and there's some data coming out from others as well, is actually looking at the body composition. And so the way that we're doing that um, is all of our patients get CT scans. Um, and as I'm sure you're aware, we can, you know, take those CT scans and actually use software and quantify um, adipose tissue, um, muscle mass, and use that to actually truly look at, at body composition instead of just looking at this surrogate BMI. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I love the, the direction towards the CT scans and, and uh, coming back to obviously what we do in terms of incorporating these into dietary and exercise trials, particularly if people are yeah. getting them anyway, I think it just adds an element of rigor that we yeah. tend to not have um, in our clinic, clinical exercise trials. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then also looking at, um, you know, so the body composition and then also looking at kind of other markers of, um, you know, the, the serum adipokines and things like that. Again, I mean, we know that people can be thin and metabolically healthy or have a little bit of extra weight and be um, more metabolically healthy. And so how does it interact with those as well? And then I think, you know, like Andrew Dannenberg's lab up at Cornell has done some beautiful work in breast cancer of showing these, these uh, inflamed adipose tissue. Um, and, you know, he can see this in metabolically unhealthy thin women where this inflamed adipose tissue is putting them at the same elevated risk for breast cancer um that you know that that an obese person would have yeah that's interesting so what does the profile look as they're as they're moving along the trajectory towards kind of um mortality i suppose at the two-year mark is it a case of them wasting away or you know is it cancer-related mortality and if so what kind of is there a differential path that an obese person versus a normal weight person would go on and they kind of characterize themselves at end of life? Yeah. So, 
you know, so that was an important question for us in melanoma. So uh, colorectal cancer is another cancer where they have this kind of obesity paradox where obesity seems to increase your risk of, um, of the malignancy, but may be associated with, with better outcomes. So in colorectal cancer, of course, a lot of patients lose weight because of the cancer. And then people also lose weight because of the chemotherapy. And so again, maybe having this extra metabolic reserve might be helping um, people kind of get through and withstand um, that kind of dual onslaught from both the cancer and the therapy. And melanoma, um, again, we did not see this in chemotherapy, which is where patients would lose weight. And we actually looked at this. And um, so one, we have very rare cachexia in, in six or so 65% of our patients with metastatic melanoma are obese or overweight. So it exactly mirrors the U.S. population um, recently. And again, it, you know, it just kind of speaks to how um, obesity has become such an issue uh, in many industrialized countries and especially the United States, um, in stage three melanoma, 85% of the men were obese or overweight. Yeah. But one of the things I was surprised at actually is, um, so the, that big Lancet oncology paper, um, those patients were actually pulled from the international randomized, um, clinical trials conducted all over the world. And the prevalence of, you know, overweight and obesity in Europe was, you know, was similarly pretty high, was also on the order of, you know, 55, 60%. Yeah. And it's interesting because talking about the kind of normal weight and and what they're potentially the trajectory they're on, like, would there be a protective role of, of rigorous activity there in terms of potentially delaying that or improving that overall percentage um that's yeah. obviously immediately where my mind goes to if we could you know if you're not pushing them towards an obese state could you at least have them undergoing you know resistance training to try and maintain if not improve lean body mass and potentially grab them in a caloric surplus and try and keep them there as as long as possible yeah um it'd be really interesting to to look at that yeah and it, you know I think there's right. There's so many different, there's so many different layers to this. I mean, the, um, it's like when I, when I give talks to the lay public on kind of energy balance about, you know, obesity and exercise, obesity can move in different directions, but I have never seen anything inconsistent in the exercise literature period. Right. I mean, it's like, Every single study, you know, sometimes in a smaller study, you might have a null effect, but the effect of exercise kind of on, you know, cancer prevention, on cancer outcomes, you know, there's never, I've, I have yet to see anything, and I'm yeah. interested if you have, where, you know, where exercise is potentially harmful. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, harmful, is, it's definitely not the case. Um, in terms of null effects, I don't know the epidemiological literature that well um i haven't seen it but that doesn't mean it's not there as you said um yeah well so i will say epidemiologically uh exercise increased exercise is associated with an increased risk of melanoma but it's completely mediated by the fact that uh people are outside not wearing sunscreen god correlation not causation good yeah yeah (laughs) um 
this I mean this is fascinating work as well um that I would love to kind of keep talking to you about but let's kind of dig into the to the microbiome stuff as well because I think okay. it's equally as important um and and a really kind of novel and exciting place moving forward so um yeah. give us the kind of down and dirty on what is the gut microbiome uh, and why sure. is it important sure so the microbiome are basically um, all of the organisms, bacteria, virus, fungi that live in a symbiotic relationship um, with us. Um, and, you know, basically we are as much uh, microbial DNA as we are our own DNA. Um, and each part of our body has its own specific niche. And so the oral microbiome is, of course, different than the skin microbiome is different than the vaginal microbiome is different than the gut microbiome. Um, a really hot topic has really been within the gut microbiome. Um, and so we have, you know, trillions of bacteria um, and then less well-characterized virus and fungi that actually live within our gut. Um, and again, really in a symbiotic relationship where they perform a major function of uh, helping us digest nutrients that are otherwise uh, inaccessible to us. So what makes, <laughs> so we talk about like good versus bad, what makes a healthy gut microbiome? Yeah. So, um, you know, so though we're just starting to look at this in the context of um, cancer, you know, the gut microbiome has really been a hot topic um, in many other diseases over the past, say, 10 to 20 years. Um, and there are a few things that seem to make kind of a, a eubiotic state. So one is overall diversity of the gut microbiome. Um, so again, there's, you know, there's all of these different bacteria, um, but you really don't want it to be overrun by any one type. And so this overall diversity seems to be important and it's really, um, a, you know, an overall, um, environment there. The second thing is, is that one of the other functions of the gut microbiome is actually helping, um, feed our intestinal epithelium, so the enterocytes, and then maintaining the mucosal layer of the gut. And so when we have a nice um, tight mucus layer um, and nice tight junctions between the enterocytes, then we have a less leaky gut. Um, and that's important because our immune system sits right on the other side. Um, so we have these draining lymph nodes, we have, you know, the, um, the, the blood that is then taking up the nutrients from our gut. And there's a big crosstalk between the immune system and the gut microbiome. And so the immune system wants to tolerate these nice commensal symbiotic bacteria while also trying to protect us from any pathogenic bacteria. And that overall diversity and kind of that nice, nice tight mucosal layer seems to set some of our overall systemic immune tone. 
um, and seems to be, you know, kind of one of the mechanisms of why the microbiome seems to be associated with so many different diseases. So, you know, both cancer and diabetes and heart disease um, and inflammatory bowel disease. Um, so there's, it's kind of that um, overall effect on human health. Uh, so I when I joined EDCAL just about a year ago now, the first project I was put on was uh, publishing our protocol paper looking at gut microbiome and exercise in, mm-hmm. in men, uh, men with prostate cancer and ADT. And at the time, I could barely spell microbiome. I mean, yeah, I, that, like, that was me about four years ago, too. <laughs> wouldn't you? And, you know, as you said, just you kind of go down these rabbit holes and you kind of start to learn the names of these different elements. Um, but yeah. kind of consistently, it comes back to this diversity. Um, you know, yeah. there's important players there, as you said. But I think, the, as you said, that the good permeability um, is really important to keeping that tight and overall mm-hmm. immune function, which I suppose then ties back into uh, what the direction of this paper was really in talking about how that may be tied back to uh, treatment response. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the, so kind of the first foray into the microbiome in cancer was really about, you know, potential pathogenic bacteria increasing risk of cancer. But I think where the field has gotten really exciting recently um, has been on the role of the gut microbiome in determining um, response to immunotherapy. So, This field actually started, um, the first papers were back in 2015. Um, There were two papers published uh, at the same time in science, one from the Zitvogel lab in France and one from the Gajewski lab at Chicago. And what they showed was that in mice, um, so in mice, if you give a mouse cancer and then you treat the mouse with immunotherapy, Some mice respond and some mice don't. And they made an interesting observation that if they got mice from one lab, like there's two big labs that we order mice from. One is uh, the Jackson lab and one is Taconic. And if they got mice from one lab, then those mice were responding to immunotherapy. Their tumors responded. And if you got it from another lab, then the mice weren't responding. And these are genetically identical mice. These are all C57 black six mice. They should have the exact same host genomics. And so the question was why, you know, in in one context are they responding and another one they weren't. And so they did a few things. So they profiled the microbiome and they found that they had different microbiomes. Okay, again, that's an association. What they did then is they actually did fecal microbiome transplants from the non-responding group of mice into the responding and vice versa. And what they see is that they were actually able to transmit the susceptibility to immunotherapy by performing a fecal microbiota transplant. So, you know, it's important because this, so immunotherapy, um, so these are these new checkpoint inhibitors. This is the work that, um, a recent Nobel Prize was awarded for. So these checkpoint inhibitors in cancer have really revolutionized melanoma, but also non-small cell lung cancer, kidney cancer, bladder cancer, certain types of colorectal cancer, stomach, like 
tons of different diseases that they're, these are now approved in. And the way that they work um, is basically, so uh, one of the functions of our normal immune cells is not just to get rid of bacteria and to get rid of viruses, but to also um, kind of surveil and help us get rid of cancerous cells or precancerous cells. Now, we don't want an immune response to just kind of go crazy, right? So when we have the flu, we eventually want our immune cells to kind of calm down, stop, you know, producing all these cytokines that are causing us to have high fevers and be miserable once, you know, once we've cleared the virus. And um, it's a system of, you know, kind of homeostasis and balance. And one of the mechanisms of that balance is actually these checkpoints that tell the immune cells to calm down. And what the discovery was, was that um, cancer cells actually co-opt this mechanism and they express these checkpoints that then basically tell the immune cells, hey, nothing going on over here. We are just normal cells. You can ignore us. Don't have an immune response against us. When we then come in and block those checkpoints, then the immune cells can actually come in then and do their jobs. And so we can actually then, by blocking those checkpoints, allow our own immune systems to then take care of the cancers. And what's exciting is that because this can then create immune memory, then some of these patients were actually taking patients that had widely metastatic disease and essentially curing them. Um, and That's this so is cool. Less- yeah. Who, whose idea was this? Like, at what point was it like, man, let's start to figure this out? Yeah, well, so, you know, so I know, um, so it was a dual Nobel Prize. Um, and the guy here at MD Anderson, um, Jim Allison, so he, you know, he's a fascinating person to look up interviews about. He's like a you know, country boy from Texas, but just brilliant <laughs> guy, plays a mean harmonica with Willie Nelson, like, interesting guy. He was just interested in T-cell biology. He was not setting out to try to cure cancer. And he discovered this. And then he spent, like, something ridiculous, like, 15 or 20 years, like, knocking down, being like, hey, this is really important. Um, like, this is really, really important. And then, you know, first showed in mice that it mattered and then eventually kind of brought this into um, humans. Um, but it's, so in melanoma, melanoma, metastatic melanoma used to be one of the most deadly diseases there was, like in line with pancreatic cancer. So our five-year survival rate was less than 10%. Now it's 50 to 60%. That's that change has just happened since 2011. Yeah. And again, yeah, so like 20 to 30% of these patients seem to be effectively cured, Um, meaning we've now followed them for years and the cancer is gone and doesn't seem to be coming back um, off of all therapies. So really a paradigm shifter. Um, But not all patients respond. So um, with the anti-PD-1 immunotherapies, um, which are nivolumab and pembrolizumab, the response rate is 50%. Um, and that means literally that 50% of patients will have tumor shrinkage and 50% will not. And we don't know how to predict 
who is or is not going to respond. Like we have, you know, these kind of biomarkers and whatever, but basically when I, you know, when I sit down with the patient, it's, it may work and it may not. And I don't know what, which bucket you're in. So there's no, there's no predictors. There's nothing about the profile that you can say you're more likely to, to respond or not. Yeah. So I can look, you know, if they have higher expression in PDL one they, you know, are maybe more likely if they have higher tumor mutation burden, they're a bit more likely, but nothing that I can say, you know, unlike with our targeted therapy, if you have a BRAF mutation, this is the drug for you and it will work. If you don't, it will not work. Um, we don't have that for immunotherapy. So then, so then of course, patients are like, well, how do I get in that bucket of the patients that respond? Um, and what are these other determinants of response? So when we saw that the microbiome was associated with response and that modifying the microbiome could actually change response in mice, that was really exciting because we can't change our tumor genomics, right? I can't change my tumor mutation burden. Um, it is what it is. But we can shape our microbiome. And we can shape it by doing things like fecal microbiota transplant, but also doing things like diet. And so it became really exciting as a potentially modifiable um, determinant of response to immunotherapy. And so when Jen Wargo um, heard this data, um, you know, first being presented before the publication in 2015, she was like, how about humans? Are you checking this in humans? Um, and they had not. And so she launched a big um, study at MD Anderson where we've been collecting um, poop samples on all of our patients that are going on to immunotherapy. Um, and uh, there were parallel efforts at a number of other institutions. And so this work was just published last year. And so basically, uh, both um, MD Anderson in France, in Chicago, they all profiled um, human microbiome specimens and found that the gut microbiome of patients that responded to immunotherapy was distinct from that of non-responders. And they identified, you know, a specific profile that was actually highly predictive of response. But again, now we're talking about associations, right? So, you know, this could still not be causal. It could still not be um, mechanism. Yeah. So then what they did is they took the poop from patients that responded to immunotherapy or from patients that did not respond to immunotherapy. And they did a fecal microbiome transplant from the humans into the mice so they gave the mouse either a responder microbiome or a non-responder microbiome, and then they gave the mouse cancer, and then they gave the mouse immunotherapy. And the mice that get the FMT, the transplant from the responders, respond to immunotherapy. And if you get the poop from a non-responder, then the mouse does not respond to immunotherapy. So how do you see this, you know, is... This is obviously we're trying to look at this in humans now, but, you know, mm-hmm. it's interesting because I'm glad you mentioned the, the the transplant because as you were talking about, we identifying a specific profile, having someone come in off the street and say, you need to get your microbiome looking like this would be exceptionally more difficult than having 
um, a sample that you were you you were aware that responds that you can then transplant. Yeah, yeah. So um, so there's a number of different you know kind of ways that we might go about doing microbiomodulation. Um, so the fecal microbiome transplant um, has been very well studied in other diseases. So this is an approved treatment for refractory um, Clostridium difficile infection. So of course, C. diff is um, kind of an outgrowth of a pathogenic bacteria that can happen after um, antibiotic use or in kind of immunocompromised people. Um, and we can give um, antibiotics that reverse that, but in some patients it becomes recurrent and refractory. And so in those patients, if you take a um, healthy donor um, stool specimen and you do a fecal microbiome transplant, and then it's given either via colonoscopy or via endoscopy or via poop pills, um, then you can basically restore normal gut microbiome and eliminate the C. diff. Um, and this has been shown in, you know, randomized trials published in the New England Journal. And again, it's an, an, an FDA approved indication. Um, so fecal microbiome transplant then is an, is is one way that we could then try to modify the microbiome of our patients. Um, so there's a lot of interesting questions that come about though. So one is who should be the donor? Is it is it enough to just give somebody a healthy donor poop or do you need to give somebody a complete responder um, poop, right? And, you know, we have favored um, and uh, most of the trials that are that are opening now actually addressing this in the context of immunotherapy um, are using complete responder um, microbiome profiles. Um, and so uh, what our trial that is just opening at MD Anderson is actually doing is not just using complete responder, but then those complete responder um, fecal microbiome specimens are actually extensively characterized. You know, again, maybe maybe somebody maybe somebody didn't respond because of their microbiome, um, and so we want to again, it's a complete responder, and they have kind of what's been identified as as this ideal signature of response. So with the the transplant. The mm -hmm. the not the donor the recipient their their yeah. microbiome would take on the profile of the donor are yeah. are those changes permanent or how long does that last Yeah, so that's another so that's another great question. So in the in the C diff literature, um, it's been shown that the that that engraftment is stable. Um, and, you know, the, I think super long-term studies aren't out there, but at least, you know, up to about six months, we know that, that it's stable and that they get very good engraftment. Now, um, FMT has also been studied in the context of other diseases, such as inflammatory bowel disease. So inflammatory bowel disease is considered a dysbiotic disease, but it's not the profound dysbiosis of C. diff, where you just have, you know, a complete overrun of one pathogenic bacteria, and then you've had multiple courses of antibiotics, et cetera. 
So what they found in inflammatory bowel disease is that if you just do a single FMT, um, you know, from a healthy donor, that they actually don't get great engraftment. And it kind of makes sense because the recipient um, microbiome is just not as disturbed. It's going to be a little bit more resistant to colonization. And so what they found actually is that a more intensive regimen where you're doing basically more like weekly FMTs um, is what is needed for good engraftment. So then how do you go about doing a weekly FMT? Um, and of course, you can't really do that via a colonoscopy route. And so that's where these poop pills come in. And so this is essentially freeze-dried um, feces that are then made into capsules. And that this is a way of kind of sustaining um, the engraftment of the microbiome. And so again, that's actually um, the avenue that we're going here at, at MD Anderson. Um, but it'll be, you know, it'll be interesting. We don't really know the right answer yet. This is all pretty new. So other, you know, other centers are trying it with a, with a single infusion um, or a few repeated infusions, but we, we just, we don't know yet. And I'd imagine those changes would be quicker and probably easier to implement compared to say modifying a diet where there's a lot of, you know, other factors involved in, in trying to actually sustain um, dietary changes. Yeah, so we're also trying the dietary route. Um, so the bacteria that were associated with response in the MD Anderson cohort are bacteria that are known to help us digest fiber. Um, so um, most fiber in the absence of our microbiome is completely indigestible to us. And so our gut microbiome um, and species like Fecalibacteria um, and Ruminococci actually help us digest the fibers and then break that down into short-chain fatty acids. And it turns out these short-chain fatty acids actually feed our enterocytes, and they're really responsible for that nice, tight mucus layer of the gut. So these are bacteria that have been found to be, you know, associated with um, some of the health benefits of a, you know, fiber-rich, um, plant-rich diet um, and, uh, and, you know, health benefits and in, in many different diseases. Um, so we saw that these fiber, these bacteria were fiber fermenting. And again, this is when Jen Wargo and I, and then our colleague, Carrie Daniel, um, who's a nutritional epidemiologist here really started coming together around this question because we also know from controlled feeding studies in other population that if you radically increase um, fiber intake, then you can increase the abundance of those bacteria, of those beneficial bacteria. Um, one of my favorite studies um, was published by O'Keefe in uh, Nature Communications back in 2015. And there they actually took um, African-Americans living in Pittsburgh or sub-Saharan Africans in Africa. So similar genetic background, but vastly different diets. So a typical Western diet versus, you know, an agrarian plant-based diet. And they housed them for two weeks and swapped their diets and they completely swapped their microbiomes. 
That's fast in two weeks. Yeah, two that's weeks. insane. Again, it comes back to this question then of sustainability, right? So if you can change it that fast, you can also change it back just as fast. So we're actually going to be doing a proof of principle study. We now have a um, a bionutrition research kitchen here at MD Anderson where we can actually provide patients every calorie-containing nutrient that will be going into their mouth over the duration of a study. Um, and so, again, because you know, I, where we ultimately need to get would be more of a behavioral modification. Um, but first, just I need to see in this context of immunotherapy, can I change the microbiome with diet? Um, and so we'll be um, randomizing patients to a high fiber, um, 50 grams of fiber a day, kind of a whole food um, plant forward diet um, or a control diet with standard um, fiber. But again, whole food based kind of generally AICR, ACS, healthy diet, um, and then feeding them for um, the duration of 12 weeks and doing longitudinal microbiome profiling, um, as well as uh, actually doing paired tumor biopsies to see if we can actually change the tumor immune infiltrate. So your uh, diet itself is kind of more towards that plant-based um uh, kind of regimen, I suppose. Yes, we have, you know, it's interesting. We have two, so we have two targets. So, um, so that is one testing the impact on the microbiome independently of that targeting a different pathway. We're still interested in this insulin and uh, PI3 kinase signaling pathway. And so we'll also be testing um, the effects of a ketogenic diet um, in this population as well. Again, completely different targets. And ultimately the question is, can we get towards more of a kind of personalized nutrition approach? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. The, uh, there's a, uh, Jeff Olick's at Ohio State and he's doing a similar, um, approach with, with the feeding kit kitchen and a ketogenic diet. And it's funny coming back to the behavioral piece you were talking about in terms of, um, in the context of, of, acting as a an adjunct or even supplement the treatment in terms of diet you're just trying to get an effect right. so in terms of we're giving you all your food this is for a specific reason and you know during that you can perhaps have some behavior change discussions but the purpose of that really is essentially a treatment it's not for sustainable yes. long term so the, the purpose then would require a different um strategy of implementation yeah, for sure. Then, you know, again, I, I look at this as kind of a, as an early phase, um, you know, proof of principle. Can we change biology? But if this works, right, then, um, then it's the question, you know, of, okay, I, I proved it in this context of a controlled feeding study, but just like with exercise, right, can we you know, can we now actually change behavior and actually, um, you know, have good adherence and good compliance and get to the dose that we need if people are doing this in a free living environment? Um, the, you know, the upside to both of these approaches is that these are very adoptable approaches. And these are things our patients are asking us, right? Like, what, what should I be eating? What else can I do? Yeah, and it's funny, kind of on that, I was looking through the, the paper, and it was interesting to hear you in the probiotic section talk about 
potentially the benefits, but also um, offer some caution in, in terms of people just kind of ad hoc or randomly just kind of start chucking <laughs> any sort of probiotic down their throat. Um, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? And I suppose let's come back and just really quickly discuss the differences between a prebiotic, probiotic, and antibiotic. So, um, so antibiotics, I think we're, you know, all familiar with, which are basically, um, you know, drugs that are specifically targeting pathogenic bacteria that we take when we have an infection. Um, a probiotic is a putatively beneficial bacteria that may confer health benefits. That's kind of the official definition. Um, and so these are these are pills that people buy um, typically over the counter. Um, and the most common use is people trying to kind of restore their normal gut flora after uh, taking an antibiotic. Um, and then a prebiotic is basically providing the nutrient for beneficial bacteria. So typically we think of a prebiotic as being a fiber. Um, and so again, we're feeding fiber this time instead of in the context of, um, you know, diet, maybe as a, as a supplement, but feeding fiber to try to feed beneficial bacteria and increase their abundance. And then there's symbiotics, which is when you combine, um, a prebiotic and a probiotic. Um, there's also probiotic foods, so these would be fermented foods um, that have naturally occurring high levels of um, specific bacteria. So yogurt, sauerkraut, kimchi, um, kombucha are all actually considered probiotics. When people hear this, then they run down to the local Walmart to buy um, great value probiotic. Is there something you need to be looking out for in a probiotic that would make it more favorable or, or, or a better quality one? Yeah. Well, so um, again, so these are, you know, they're considered supplements and so they are largely unregulated. Um, and so the, um, so one, they can't actually claim to treat any disease by most laws. Um, two is, is that the amount of colony forming units um, when they test these probiotics actually varies widely um, and can be significantly different from what's on the label. Um, also, as far as just quality control, as, uh, as far as making sure that it's only the good bacteria that's in there. So there's a lot of, um, it, just like with any supplements, um, there's a lot of issues with the fact that these these are unregulated um, industries. Um, our concern as well with probiotics um, is so there's there was a really a interesting recent um, paper, the Israeli lab, um, the Siegel lab has done some interesting work where they took, again, the most common use of probiotics is after antibiotics. So they took either mice or humans and they gave them broad spectrum antibiotics. And then they did one of three things. They either gave them back an autologous fecal microbiome transplant, meaning they had collected their poop from before they gave them the antibiotics. And then they gave it back to them after the antibiotics. They let them 
restore on their own. They just gave them time or they gave them a probiotic. The um, mice or the humans that got the uh, transplant, they quickly restored their, you know, kind of pre-antibiotic normal gut microbiome easy. Um, with time, the animals and the mice reequilibrated. The probiotic actually significantly delayed the restoration of the normal gut flora. And if we think about it, it kind of makes sense. Again, the diversity of the gut microbiome is important. What they were doing is basically having a single strain of a bacteria coming in and trying to kind of take over. And what they found was that the lactobacillus, which is, you know, probably the most common probiotic that people take, was actually actively secreting something, trying to prevent the other bacteria from coming back. And so it was a case of kind of hyper-competitive exclusion. We started back in 2015, and we've just started presenting this work and are um, working on publication now. But back in 2015, we started asking our patients that we were collecting these microbiome samples on about their lifestyle. So we asked them about probiotic and antibiotic use. We asked them about diet, um, exercise, stress, and social support. And we're just starting to analyze that data. But what we found is that our patients, and one is 42% of our patients were taking a probiotic. Um, and I think a lot of this is actually kind of partially our fault, right? Because, <laughs> because now everybody's like, oh, we read this microbiome literature, I need to go take a probiotic. To 42% of our patients are taking a probiotic. The patients that were taking probiotics, even in the absence of, we excluded the patients that were taking antibiotics because we know that that can negatively affect the gut flora. So when we exclude those patients, the patients taking probiotics have significantly lower diversity of their gut microbiome. Interesting. Yeah. So again, you know, it's an association. Maybe people are taking probiotics because they have some underlying um you know, kind of gut issue, right? That's mm. causing them to take a probiotic, but um, there will be some interesting mechanistic data coming out as well. Um, again, showing that, that this is uh, kind of off the, over the counter probiotics are not the right way to enhance response to immunotherapy. Now, I don't think that that means that probiotics have no role in this. Um, so again, I think it needs to be, there, there are multiple trials um, using kind of rationally designed probiotics to try to impact response to immunotherapy. And so there, they're finding, you know, this specific kind of pro-response bacteria um, that were identified in these different cohorts and that showed, you know, ability to enhance response to immunotherapy in mice. They're trying those in the context of clinical trials. Um, and, uh, you know, most commonly these are, these are kind of bacterial consortia. So not just one, um, bacteria, but kind of a, a family of bacteria that work together, um, and support each other. Um, and then using that as more of a, a targeted therapy, personalized, um, microbiome approach. What what really fascinated me about uh, the paper was one of your figures talking about kind of clinical trial design and considerations and really 
the 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 breadth of work that you have you and others have ahead of you in trying to figure oh out God. different areas in this um and obviously you know an, an overview of all this is going to be on the scope of this but are there some key areas that i think are really important in in getting us to the next step in our understanding yeah um you know i think i think one of the biggest things right now is who do we who do we target so should you know, all of our patients starting immunotherapy, is that the right time to try to modify their microbiome? The problem is, is that we don't, we don't have real time microbiome testing. So I can't, you know, send my patient out and tomorrow tell them, hey, you have a good or a bad microbiome. Um, and therefore, we should try to modify our microbiome. And, you know, and honestly, in all of these different cohorts, the microbiome profile that was associated with response was was different in each cohort. So what really is the ideal microbiome and can we actually use that as a predictive biomarker? And so, you know, could we, could we take somebody that has a good microbiome and we just don't know it and could we screw it up, um, right? And so do we do it in patients that are that have not had treatment, or do we do it in patients that their disease did not respond to immunotherapy? And then can we use microbiome modulation to try to reverse that? Or is that too high of a bar? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> People think research is easy. My God. Right? Yeah. Um, yeah. It, that That's, for me, it, it keeps coming back to that. You know, and it's funny when you talk to experts in a gut microbiome, there's so much uncertainty around what's yeah. what's the best. Then you go onto Instagram and everyone's like, this is the best way to do it. The The whole idea of we're striving for what we think is an optimal um, environment, which also taken outside of the context of cancer may be different perhaps for uh, diabetes or another chronic condition. Right. Th that environment may be you know more beneficial for that profile so that in itself is is uh you know really interesting in trying to wrap your head around all of it yeah no one of the things that was interesting is with the with the trial so the fda so you can transmit again obesity is a microbiome related disease and you know there have been a couple of um purported cases where you know somebody got an fmt from an obese patient and they became obese Wow. And so there are strict BMI um, cutoffs as far as donors, but we were like, hey, obesity might actually be good in the context of immunotherapy, so maybe we need to wow, you know, yeah. open that up a little bit. So in, in terms of this, this whole conversation then, um, I suppose you're used to having these conversations with your patients in particular, but... What are the kind of the, the key takeaways from this whole area of research in terms of perhaps dietary modifications people can do or, you know, I yeah. think you, you, you kind of made a good job, a great job of highlighting that the, the modifiable factors that are at play here. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, again, we like I said we're, we're, we're testing the high fiber diet. But what I can say is that in that lifestyle survey, we did find that um, the patients, and again, this is kind of um, data that will be coming out soon, our patients that had a baseline um, high fiber, high quality um, diet were significantly more likely to respond to immunotherapy. Again, 
need to address causality. Um, but you know, for now, what I'm telling my patients is, you know, eat a plant forward, um, diet with a, with a rich abundance of different sources of fiber. So again, not one fiber source, which, you know, might enhance for one bacteria. Um, but, uh, you know, different types of whole grains, lots of different fruits and vegetables. And, you know, I feel comfortable with going ahead and giving that type of dietary advice because that's actually, that's actually the, the diet that's recommended already for cancer patients. Um, and that we know, it, you know, is preventative um, of many different types of disease. So I, I don't think it's too early to kind of give that advice. I think the question is, will that actually change outcomes? And that's the part that we need, you know, that we need these interventional studies. And again, is that the right diet advice for everybody? Or for somebody that's, say, insulin resistant, do they need to be on the ketogenic diet? Yeah. How is that working out for you in Texas, telling people to stop eating steak? <laughs> oh, I, I, I don't say stop eating steak. I say eat more fruits and vegetables. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not from Texas. I don't want to get run out. <laughs> yeah, be very careful. Um, yeah. <laughs> An angry mob of uh, cowboy hat wearing. <laughs> yeah. Um, Listen, did, I, I can't take it. What a fascinating episode for me. Um, you know, it's a new area for me and something I'm really excited about. And, and your work and even the, the, the chat at the uh, onset of the episode about obesity, it, it's just there. Uh, your work is fascinating. And, and I, I'm sure you've got a, a, a great career ahead of you in this space. And I'll be, obviously be following closely with you. Um, I really appreciate you taking time to give such a great um, chat to us and insight into what you're doing. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Oh, uh, where can people find you? Keep in touch with you. Oh, uh, so they can find me on Twitter um, at uh, McQuaid, um, M-C-Q-U-A-D-E, M-D-L-A-C. Um, or uh, reach out to me. My MD Anderson email is jmcquaid at mdanderson.org. <laughs>